Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Church, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them into Daniel chapter 5. We're uh, kind of closing in on our first half of the book. Uh, we're going to cover uh, chapter 5 today and chapter 6 next week, and that'll kind of end our series in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5, there's a familiar idiom that comes from this chapter called the writing on the wall. And, uh, you know, maybe you've used that a time or two where you know that there's impending doom or impending end coming, and you've said, well, the writing's on the wall. Maybe you're a Braves fan and you were watching the, uh, the playoffs last, last fall, and when the opposing team scored 10 runs in the first inning against you, you said, well, the writing is on the wall, right? Not, not again. We're not going to make it again. Maybe, maybe you've said that before, the writing's on the wall, but let me kind of give you a little bit of history of what's happening here in chapter 5. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's gone. He's passed away. He's moved on. His son took over the kingdom. He was killed by a brother-in-law, and then there was kind of a fight for uh, power. And now there's Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is more than likely the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's kind of come into this, uh, this role, just kind of worked his way in, basically is kind of what historians say. Now, the Mede and Persian army, they are, they are trying to get in and trying to take over Babylon. And so the Babylonians, they, they realize they can't, they can't match them in, in the war. So they've They've reclused themselves back in. They've moved themselves back inside the city walls. And these walls, as, as one uh, historian says, were 350 feet high and 87 feet wide and was nobody getting in these walls, right? These things were huge. And so they're, they're deciding that, you know what? They can't get in, so we're going to eat, drink, and we're going to be merry, and we're just going to party like it's 500 and what? 580 B.C. And so we're just going to party like it's that day. And, and so they're doing that. And meanwhile, the army for two and a half years is, is camped out around the city walls. And so uh, some historians say that they would have had enough resources inside these walls to last 20 years. And so they were just going to ride it out. So uh, King Cyrus or Darius or whatever, he, he uh, decided, I, you know what I'm going to do? I realize that the Euphrates River flows into the city underneath the wall and goes out the backside. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go upstream here, and I'm going to dig out a canal, and I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to divert the water into this marshland so that the water level will drop. So this whole time, he's over there digging, and he's got this army digging, and they've diverted the water. And he said, all right, now I want you to get around the walls, and when the water level drops to where you can walk in the water, I want you to go underneath the walls. And so that's exactly what happened on this very night of the chapter we're about to read. The water level went low enough, and the army snuck in underneath, and Belshazzar lost his life. What a great, great story. Don't you love history? I could tell from your faces. Okay, so um, first thing I want you to see, a corrupt culture blasphemes the things of God. A corrupt culture blasphemes the things of God. Let's begin reading there, verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, there's no word for a grandfather, so father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that, he, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, 
And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Belshazzar uses the things of God to gratify his own sinful pleasures, which is idolatry. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, again, we come to you. We thank you so much for your word. God, as we read this narrative and as we walk through it and as we see the fact that you are in control of all things, Lord, that you would be in control of our lives, that we would submit our lives to you this morning, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we wouldn't be resistant to you and your spirit, and God, that you would grow us closer to you in Christ's name. Amen. So Belshazzar, he finds himself in this situation where he thinks he's better. And so he's throwing this huge political party, and he's throwing this big party, and he's having this party. He's thinking, nobody's getting in these walls. We're just going to eat, drink, and be merry. And so he decides, you know what? We're going to use the things of God in in a blasphemous, irreverent way. And so Belshazzar is a blasphemer. The word blasphemy means to speak ill of or to profane with an irreverent use. So this reminds you of Mark chapter 3, verses 28 through 29. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. So there's forgiveness for that. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now when I was younger and I would read this verse, I was scared. Have I done it? I mean, I was making fun of some people at church this morning. Did I blaspheme the Spirit? Like, I was really kind of worried that I had done something that was so bad that there was not going to be any forgiveness for that. And that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying, look, there's a, there's a way in a person's heart where they are so opposed to the things of God that they can't find any room for repentance. And so that's where Belshazzar is. He's a blasphemer. Belshazzar is to the point where he is sinning in such a way that he is unwilling and unable to repent and believe. And we're going to see this as we go through the chapter because God's going to show up yet again in the narrative and there is no repentance in his heart. As we'll see later, Belshazzar is like an Esau. Hebrews 12, 17, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What an interesting word there for found no chance to repent. It means... He couldn't find a place in his heart for genuine repentance. He felt sorry for the loss, but he wasn't convicted of the sin. His tears were not tears of repentance. They were tears of remorse. A lot of times, we're so willfully disobedient to God that when the consequences show up or when God's word shows up, we're not so much convicted, we're just sorry. I'm just really sorry that I got caught. I'm really sorry that I'm having to go through this. I really wish I didn't have to do it. And we cry and we we, uh, say we repent, but really we're just remorseful. Belshazzar is at this point. He's a blasphemer. Belshazzar is in a state of willful, determined opposition to the presence and the power of God. You see, although he knows about God and has the possessions of God and is surrounded by the people of God, there is no place for God in his heart. We've talked a lot about living with conviction in a corrupt culture. And if you think about the culture that we live in, there's a lot of people who know a lot of things about God. They're surrounded by the possessions of God and the people of God, but yet there's no room for God in their heart. They live in a corrupt culture. And when you live that way, you become boastful. Belshazzar is boastful. Boastful means self-satisfaction in one's achievements and possessions. 
So he is boastfully blaspheming the things of God by using the things of God to worship the things of the world. So he asks for these vessels to be brought in so that he can use them in a blasphemous way because he wants to worship his gods with the things of God. You say, Do you understand what's happening? I'm going to use the things of God to worship my gods. I'm so much better. I'm so much greater. I'm so full of pride that I'm going to use these things because this is what matters most. I'm so boastful. One commentator says he is literally the equivalent to the New Testament rich fool. In Luke 12, 15 through 21, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build large ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Do you see the correlation between him and Belshazzar? Eat, drink, and be merry. I've, I've stored up all these things. I'm safe inside these walls, and no one can touch me. And I'm going to take the things of God, and I'm going to use them, and I'm going to fill them with the things of this world so I can worship the gods that I want to worship because of pleasure and possessions. You fool. You've done all this. Don't you realize that your very life will be called tonight? That your days are numbered? That your writing is on the wall? Belshazzar is blatantly worshiping wealth. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We may not call it worship. We may not even call it idolatry. But the sacrifice for and the exaltation of material and financial wealth is what Scripture calls idolatry. Anytime we take the things of God and use them for the worship of the things of this world, we are committing idolatry. So, what are the possessions of God? How do you treat the things of God? Let's look at these verses together. Deuteronomy 14, 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth, you he has chosen to be a treasured possession. Mark 12, 17, Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You remember in this story, they come and they're asking Jesus about paying taxes, and they bring him a coin, and he says, Well, who's, whose image is on the coin? He said, they said, Well, Caesar's image is on the coin. And he says, Okay, well then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's got his face on it. I guess it belongs to him. And render to God what is God's. So what has God's face on it? We were made in the very image of God. And so Jesus says, look, if you really want to be someone who worships, give to God what is God's. Don't use the things of this world and fill them up with the things of this world to worship your gods. Give to God what is God's. And so he says that. So what are the possessions of God? What and how do you treat the things of God? 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Wow, you are a chosen race. 
Church, you are a royal priesthood. Church, you are a holy nation. And you are a people of his own possession. How do you use the things of God and the possessions of God? 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and 19 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. When you take the things of God, the possessions of God, and you realize that Belshazzar is blaspheming God by taking the things of God and filling him with the things of this world to worship his own pleasures and his own possessions, you see how idolatry creeps its way into even modern-day living where we take the things of God, we fill it with the things of this world, and we worship the things of this world because that's what brings us pleasure and possessions. Do you see that? Or did I get tongue-tied? Because I said that really fast. So... Either way, I'm sure it was true. Okay, Belshazzar, his blasphemous act of boastful idolatry, the degrading act of using the things of God and filling them with the things of the world for the pleasure of himself and the praise of the possessions. You see, we are the possessions of God, called to be filled with the presence of God for the ultimate praise of God. That's true worship. Be a people who worship him in spirit and in truth. We are the possessions of God. We were purchased at a very high price. Honor God with your bodies. We're called to be filled with the presence of God for the ultimate praise of God. Second thing we see is a corrupt culture is convicted by the word of God. So this is where the story gets really interesting. Daniel chapter 5, verses 5 through 9, immediately... The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite of the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Verse 7. The king called loudly to bring all the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and all the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and the lords were perplexed. It says immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Now, I want you to think about the sight. It says the king saw these actual fingers begin to write on the wall, and his color changed, and his limbs gave way, which is a really polite way of saying his bowels released, right? He loaded his diaper. I mean, he was scared, you know, like, I'm not going to go any further because we could get in trouble. So, you know, he was like, oh, so there's an actual hand writing on the wall. The very hand that holds all things together. The hand of God that writes God's word. The hand of God that wrote the Ten Commandments. The hand of God that created everything out of nothing. And he's staring it straight in the face. And his limbs give way. 
And then the king's wise men came in. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Again, we see the wise men come in, these astrologers, Chaldeans. They just can't figure it out. 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Human intellect isn't enough when it comes to God. These poor wise men, every chapter it seems like they show up and they're like, we, we don't know. We, we, we got nothing. But you know what? One day, there's going to be some wise men show up from the east. These astrologers who've been following a star, they get it right. They show up and they kneel before the king of kings and the lord of lords, even while he's a little baby or a little boy. He's probably two years old. Let's get the, let's get the timeline, right? Okay, so, you know, he's probably two. But they come and they show up with gold and frankincense and myrrh and they worship the king of kings and the lord of lords because they figured it out. Look, it's, it's not human intellect. It's God. God in the flesh. Immediately, these fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the wall. And the writing on the wall was in Aramaic. And it would have had no vowels, and it would have been written with no breaks in the word. So I, I'm just giving you some letters there. So this is on the wall, and I'm going to call all of you in. I'm going to be like, all right, I need you all to figure that out. Right? I, I, a couple of weeks ago, my daughter, she turned 15, and we went to uh, a breakout room. Anybody heard of a breakout room? If you haven't heard of a breakout room, let me explain it to you this way. You pay someone money to lock you in a room <laughs> for an hour. Like, I'm going to pay you really good money. I want you to lock me in there and just see if I can get out. That's basically what we did. So my wife and I, we go in with these teenagers, and we're thinking, oh, we're going to have to really use our brains here, right? And so you get in this room, and there's all this writing on the wall. There's letters, and there's numbers, and there's diagrams. There's, you know, Morse code. There's all kinds of things, and you're looking at it all, and you're like, I have to figure out all of these riddles in order to unlock boxes so I can get keys, so I can get more codes, so I can go over here, and i got to figure out which one's which, and so I can get out. And here's the saving grace. They say, you got 60 minutes on the clock. At any point, you can ask for three clues. And if you don't time your clues well... You are in trouble. We got out with 58 seconds left. Woo, right? So, but I'm in there and I'm looking at all, this, all these letters and everything on the wall and I'm like, I need a clue. I just, I don't understand what the M and the N and the M and the N, I, I need a clue here. And these wise men show up and they look at it. The writing's on the wall, the clock's ticking 60 minutes passes, and they're like, we don't, we don't know. We, we got nothing. The king, Belshazzar, at this point is greatly alarmed. And his color changed, and the lords were perplexed. Interesting thing here, fearful concern isn't the same as fruitful conviction. He's really concerned, but his heart has not changed. Matthew 3, 7 through 8. John the Baptist says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You religious people, you brood of vipers, who warned you? When did you see the writing on the wall? Or are you just concerned with what's happening? 
Did you come to repent and conviction? If so, then bear fruit. You see, the word of God, the writing on the wall, gives a warning of the wrath to come. So when we see the consequences of sin and the word of God, we don't need to just be concerned. We need to be convicted. Hebrews says it this way in 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Conviction cuts to the soul. Concern captures your attention only for a second. Many times we will read God's word, the writing on the wall, and we'll say, oh, I'm a little concerned about that. There's probably some things in my life that shouldn't be there. And for a second, we try to change, try to do things a little differently. But conviction, conviction cuts you deep. Conviction makes you humbly repent and bear fruit. Tim Keller says it this way, a real Christian finds the Bible living and active. When they hear the Bible or read the Bible, they are convicted, comforted, thrilled, disturbed, melted, slammed down or lifted up, not just educated. And can I tell you what's so scary about a lot of us who study God's word is we do it to be educated and not to be convicted. And if your education of God's word never leads to a transformation from God's word, then you might have missed it. There's got to be a change. There's got to be a cutting of the soul. Oh, I feel it. I'm not just concerned. I'm convicted by God's word. Let's keep reading in Daniel, picking up verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared. Now, this queen is probably his mother, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods is in whom the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit Knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Where is Daniel? Well, Daniel's been released after King Nebuchadnezzar. All those, all those uh, ones that were there that were his confidants have been released, and he's in obscurity, and he's probably 80 years old. He spent somewhere around 60 years now in Babylon, living in a corrupt culture. And he's kind of off in retirement, you know, playing golf, and they call him up, and he's like, oh, I got to go back to the king again and, like, interpret a dream? I thought I already did that, you know? And so he comes back, and as we're about to see, he's going he's gonna to speak a little more harshly to Belshazzar than he did Nebuchadnezzar. A corrupt culture is condemned by sin. Picking up verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. 
Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when the heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. Verse 21. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and set over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Let's stop right there. So Daniel comes in and he's like, look, I'm going to tell you what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar because we read it last chapter, right? He went crazy. He lost his mind. He spent seven years or seven periods of time out in the wild. He woke up wet from the dew. He was eating grass. His fingernails grew long. His hair grew long. Uh, his beard grew long. He just, he looked like a wild animal out there. And then when his reasoning returned, he praised the Lord and gave testimony because God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. And he says, Belshazzar, you knew all this. You've heard the stories. You, you've known all this, but you haven't humbled yourself. In fact, you had premeditated sin. The blatant ignorance of God, His holiness, His commands, His power and authority to live for your own pleasures and your own desires. You knew all of this. You know that there's a God. You know that you have the things of God, and yet you're still living in opposition, a willful opposition to God. Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often approved, reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Proverbs 21.11, When a scoffer is punished, the simple become wise. There's two ways to learn your lesson, the easy way and the hard way. The simple way is, you learn from other people's mistakes. You see what has happened in their life. You see the consequences of sin in their life. And you say, I don't want any part of that. The hard way is to say, oh yeah, it's not going to happen to me. I know better. He says, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. And you knew all of this. Belshazzar didn't learn from the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. He heard the stories, and they had no spiritual impact in his life. Like Belshazzar, too many young people know the stories. They have heard the testimonies. They were raised in homes of conviction in a corrupt culture, but they grew up and walked away from the church 
from their faith, from their convictions, from the convictions of their parents. They decided to live their life in contradiction to their parents' convictions, and the writing is on the wall. The consequences of sin are coming. You see, you may know a lot of good and still be far from God. It's not your parents' faith that saves you. It's not your grandparents' faith that saves you. It's your faith. Though you knew all this, you haven't humbled yourself. Students, I hope you hear that. Though you knew all this, though you were raised in church, though you heard all the stories, though you heard testimonies from those who had walked very difficult paths and come out on the other side, don't have premeditated sin and say, you know what, I think I know better. Let's keep reading verse 23. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways. You have not honored. Verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered your days and your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This prophetic handwriting has an implication for our time. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. The writing is on the wall. The writing is in his word. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a warning. There's a writing on the wall that the days are numbered. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this. There's a warning. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Realize that in the last days there's going to be some that are divided. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They've heard the stories. They know the things of God, the possessions of God, but they live for themselves. Job 31.6, let me be weighed 
in the just balance and let God know my integrity. 1 Samuel 2, 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Luke 16, 14 through 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In the days of Daniel, there was writing on the wall. There was a warning of, of wrath and of doom. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. When we are weighed, we are weighed against the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Religion won't save you. Right living won't save you. Only the blood of Jesus covering your sins counts for anything. Your days are numbered. Every single one of us know that. We're not promised tomorrow. You come in here today and you've got plans this afternoon. You've got plans this week. You've got plans this month. You've got plans this year. We write things on the calendar and we act like we've got all the time in the world. All of our days are numbered. And one day we will stand before a king. And you will be weighed against the righteousness of God unless you have the righteousness of God covering you by the blood of Jesus Christ. You'll be divided. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. One day we will stand washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. But you were once like this. We all have our days numbered. None of us are promised tomorrow. And one day we will stand before a holy, holy, holy king. Wayne Grudem says this, If a person makes a practice of sinning, that is, if someone continues in a pattern of disobedience without repentance, he may not have ever truly put his trust in Jesus for salvation. God's word is the writing on the wall. You may have said a prayer, walked an aisle, been raised in a church or a Christian home, but if your heart and your life are not changed by the power and the presence of God, and if there is no fruit of repentance in your life, you might not be saved. If you still practice sin with no conviction, you might not be saved. Are you, right now, living convicted of sin? or corrupted by the culture. Billy Graham says this, the percentage of church members who are lost ranges somewhere from 50 to 85%. Tim Keller says it's possible to trust in Christianity rather than to trust in Christ. It's possible to put so much faith 
in the fact that you know about God. You've heard the stories. You know the things about God. But if you haven't humbled your heart, repented of your sins, turned from your ways and said, God, save me, you may not be saved. But Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to cry out to a holy, holy, holy king. And maybe for the first time, you need to say a simple prayer. It's not a special prayer that uh, needs to be repeated exactly. It's a prayer from the heart of, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know apart from you, there's no hope for me because I'll be weighed against your righteousness and I will stand condemned. But right now, I ask for forgiveness of my sins. I ask for you to forgive me. I ask for you to change me. I ask for you to be my Savior and my Lord. I give you that opportunity to bow your head, to humble your heart, and to pray. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.